Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. The Gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com. Nestled in our highly organized and soberly beautific hidden bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. The following program is produced with an artistic vengeance by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am, let me check, I am still the legendary Burl Bear, man right there, Mark C.G. Boyer, my fact checker. Bum, 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 bum. Oh, hi, I got distracted there momentarily. Uh, if you heard our most recent program, which was brilliant, of course, <laughs> we were discussing the impact of arts, visual, audio, electronic, painting, sculpture. Beep, beep, beep. That was exciting. On the uh, reformation and recovery of criminals. I think we're going to do that again today. Different people, however. It's a fascinating topic. In fact, I'm, uh, I think our guest called in and got disconnected. Am I correct, Matt? Matt knows everything. Your guest is there. Oh, he's there. Well, hey, hi there. Sid, how you doing? I'm all right, I'm all right. How you doing today, bro? How you guys doing? Uh, better and better every day in every way, as Emile Coué would say. You know, Emile Coué was a French psychologist who used to stand in front of the mirror and say, every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. <laughs> and he said that until he believed it. Unfortunately, he was incorrect. <laughs> yeah. But he was heavily into positive affirmations. Okay. Now, uh... Reason we're having you on the show today, besides the fact I, I find you fascinating in a bizarre sort of way, is uh, we were discussing the importance of the arts in recovery from all manner of things, including criminal behavior. Uh, we had uh, Leonard Bouchel, who uh, was a uh, very accomplished drug smuggler, who found himself at the movies. He always loved movies. And when he, uh, he got clean and sober, he started along with the Robert Downey Sr., his good buddy, the Real Recovery Film Festivals and the Experience, right. Strength, and Hope Awards, etc. And the film festival has become incredibly successful over the, the past several years and now is international in scope. This year it's streamed uh, instead of in the theater. So you can see it in your home, 88 films. There were uh, some of them absolutely incredible pieces of work by, by new filmmakers. And... Uh, uh, it was really quite, quite an event. First time it's been streaming. Next year, it'll be both in the theaters, God willing, and streaming as well. And we had our pal Punch, the world's second greatest diamond thief, uh, on, who uh, is now a very respected canvas artist in a variety of forms and has totally uh, changed his uh, behavior, shall we say. If, <laughs> but I remember our friend uh, Felon O'Reilly said when he when he goes into a store... He sees where all the cameras are and everything. And in his mind, he's robbing the place. But he just buys his stuff and says thank you and leaves. Because <laughs> he has so many synapses in his brain for doing things the old way. That it takes conscious effort not to. Now you, okay. as far as I grasp, you used to be a hell of a criminal. In fact... Well, yes, yes, you can say that. You can say that. <laughs> I mean, attempted murder is not exactly a misdemeanor. 
No, no, it's not. It's just it's, it's starting to weigh in on the heavy side of um what they consider malicious activity. So yes, um, pretty much a a, a, um, a series of making the wrong decisions, and then you know the seriousness of that starts to intensify. So that's what you're speaking of, yes, sir. Well, Kayla, let's go with this in two parts here. First of all, how and why and in what sociological, emotional, psychological condition did you become a criminal and wind up incarcerated? Well, when you ask that question, you know it's so many ways to expand on it, but we're going to go straight into the into the, the real cusp of that type of, as you say, psychological mind state. And it, it comes from, from many different forms of, of damage, psychological damage, um, withdrawal from a lot of different types of emotion. And I use the word withdrawal because a lot of times, you know, growing up, things that you would expect to be given, they can be given, but if they're not understood, then the application of how you use those things, they're actually they actually create like um, a rejection. Mm-hmm. And that rejection turns into a source of pain, then that pain is acted out. So, you know, when we're talking about, you know, attempted murders, you know, you're thinking of, you know, action with a firearm and, you know, the, the aggression of that activity. And, and what, what sometimes we, we fail to realize is that activity in- includes so much, so much internal that's mm-hmm. being given and that comes from a, a deep source of pain, a lot of misunderstanding. So um, that's a violent crime that I was definitely convicted of. And, and so much of my, my life leading up into that pretty much, you know, built me into being able to process and that type of aggression. So so what, did we have it, kind of a, a distortion of your own self-image where you saw yourself as someone in reality? I mean, real reality that you weren't. Yes, sir. Um, and trying to accomplish that that distortion, and then you realize that distortion is a good good term uh, to use when you're trying to connect pieces. You know, that's what distortion is dealing with. Things that are fragmented, that are separated, they're distorted. So when you're speaking of an image and the way things were given to us when we came into this world, uh, coming into a brand new generation where our complete society was basically being re-indoctrinated through a lot of different broadcasting, a lot of different, the way that products were being sold, the way that, you know, my culture was being targeted. And I say my culture being acknowledged as what we've said is a black American. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's so many ways that that distortion starts to affect a household. And my parents, um, Samuel Sims Sr., Linda and Linda Sims, um, they were focused on being able to put specific things in our life. That distortion comes from not being able to align certain things that you're getting outside of the home. Then when you're in, inside the home, that rejection, that withdrawal that I spoke of earlier, you know, it comes from the rejection where things just start starting to line up. So um, there's that, a disconnect, the a disconnect, ahead, a disconnect between what you're told life is and what the life is you're experiencing. Exactly. That Yes, sir. That's what it is. So then you're dealing with that distortion of image, something that you're trying to accomplish. It's not aligned in the house. And then when you're out in the world, you're free to try to figure out a way to align it. And aggression was my first nature, not my second nature. You know, I was raised to box, raised to play football. So 
that withdrawal and that pain that starts to come out, that's acted out, that's kind of the way that it's it's mirrored. And you, you sort of start putting the pieces of distortion together and something that you're acknowledged as, then the image starts to make sense. So you're starting to achieve a sense of alignment, basically. Things are starting to make sense almost through wrong decisions, how they're actually starting to give you a certain sense of entitlement, how they're starting to build you an image, and these things are actually negative. So that definitely is what leads into that type of behavior or that psychological understanding where it becomes acceptable to the individual, being myself. So you saw that as, well, what's wrong with this? This is what I do. Yes. Yeah. Or, or not so much this is what I do, but this is what I'm capable of doing, and this is what is actually being shown to us. This is what's being... This is what's being allowed. It's what's being sold in the market. It's what's being advertised in the market. It's actually a commodity in the entertainment field. So when you're seeing things that our family is trying to give you, then ways that you're used to seeing or that you're being given a certain type of emotion through broadcasting, um, you're supposed to get hugs, you're supposed to get gifts, and you're supposed to get advances, um, allowances, when you're not receiving those type of things, that's where the disconnect actually creates that type of um, illusion to go and try to champion an image that is being given. And that's what the actual, the broadcasting, the entertainment, all of the influence that we have, that's actually what, not even back then, even still now more so now than ever, that's actually what helps shape that paradigm and creates that, that illusion that negatives are actually acceptable because they're starting to gain you some sort of reputation, repu reputation or attention. Well, you certainly got plenty of attention when they sent you to prison. Man, what? And then the thing about it is, because <laughs> you said it like that, because then the attention automatically turns in reverse, because then it's the wrong type of attention. You're correct. You're thrust into a spotlight where, you know, you end up standing in front of a courtroom and something that's actually been, you know, I went to trial. My first time going to trial, um, facing 80 to 105 months for uh, two attempted murders. My first time going to trial ever. Um, this trial uh, was um, basically being in front of, you know, the jury of my peers as it's acknowledged. But to actually be in front of those type of individuals after watching Law and Order, after watching Matlock, my family, they were stern believers in Matlock, Columbo. You can go on and on for days, things that, that dramatize these type of actions, these type of results. It's completely different because that attention is a real energy, and it will completely deflate you. And that's when I was able to understand, you know, that true weight, the gravity of the situation that I was in, as well as the type of decisions that I had made to get there. So once you're in there, how long were you behind bars before you started to put some pieces together and wake up? Well, it kind of, it, it works into a different process because the, the 80 to 105 month sentence that I actually received wasn't my first actual brush with that type of litigation. Um, the law had already apprehended me maybe a year before then. I was in a situation dealing with four armed robberies, which is what derailed my college and my football career, um, was caught in possession of two firearms, um, 
and was dealing with four armed robberies. This was in Madison County in Western North Carolina, where I was attending college at Mars Hill University. Um, I had only been there for three months. So after moving out of that with a, a, I mean, a true blessing, you know, understanding how the litigation system can actually work, you know, it became almost obvious to me that maybe it didn't work, that maybe, you know, the, the moniker that crime doesn't pay, maybe that's backwards too. So by the time I'm actually suffering from the misunderstanding of that illusion, because now I've actually taken, I was offered 44 months, 44 to 54 months for two assault with a deadly weapons with intent to kill inflicting serious injury. After being offered a plea dealing with the fact that I had no criminal history, um, the mitigating factors of my, or what I'm saying is the lesser circumstantial factors of my criminal history allowed me to fall into a bracket where I was facing, you know, a lower range sentence because I had zero points. That's how the criminal or the sentence and guideline is utilized. Mm-hmm. I actually lied told a lie, and, you know, the DA did her best to keep me from going to trial, gave me another chance to actually take a plea. I still went to trial. So when I'm actually serving 80 to 105 months, that's a good question you just asked, bro, because by the time I actually hit 44 months, you have to realize that I was offered 44 months basically to, to acknowledge my error, to to say that what I had done was wrong, and basically, you know, show remorse to the families of two victims and not basically try to say that I had nothing to do with it. So when I hit 44 months in prison, that's really when the doors to what injustice really felt like opened up. Not so much from a courtroom, but inside of myself. Because then I could see the injustice that I had done to myself. So that's what basically shaped the psychological paradigm and created the the platform that change was necessary and acknowledgement was that first beginning of change. Because not only had I done myself an injustice, I'd actually positioned families, Victims, friends of families, and most of all, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister. That's when I could see the true injustice. Because at 44 months, I actually could have been moving back into my life. I would have only been um, 23 years old. Still would have been very much, you know, able to go back into school, still play football. And I basically negated all of that simply by you know, clinging on to that image and that distortion that we spoke of earlier. So 44 months would be exactly when that, you know, that tidal wave of emotion and reality mix, and you are just feeling what it is to be overwhelmed with with truth and and injustice, you know, both ways, not just from a court system, but the truth of what injustice really is, which is the lack of a legitimate result, you know? Mm -hmm. So when this hits you, what were the first steps towards reinventing yourself to match your reality, shall I say? Well, uh, religion has been a big part of my life always, okay, from growing up. But obviously religion hadn't done anything in regards to uh, praying, um, Bible verses. I was aware of all those things, almost to the point where, you know, the 
the source of religion becomes the biggest catapult for leveling out excuses instead of being able to actually take self-responsibility, do that self-inventory that you're speaking about, and, and take responsibility of actual self. It's not so much what, what we're aware of, what we've actually digested, it's how we're applying these things, how we turn sword energy into actually kinetic energy. Potential energy is, is just sitting there. So the, the biggest part of, of that acknowledgement, bro, was being able to start looking at the true characteristics of my behavior, of, of who I am, um, why I feel certain ways, and that took me back into how certain emotions were even established or accumulated inside of me to begin with. Um, I was diagnosed as a manic depressant when I hit the Pope Youth Center in 1998. I was diagnosed as a manic depressant. The main thing that I utilized to start truly taking responsibility, and I'm going to say taking advantage of responsibility, was not allowing the medical staff to you know, basically pamper me with medication by saying, okay, hey, he's he's a depressant, he's a manic depressant. Um, let's just give him Thorazine and let him oh, sit around oh, and let his no, head no, beat no, the no. wall. And, you know, oh, that, no, that, no. So that what I cho- Go ahead, bro. I was going to say, Thorazine is not the recommended medication for bipolar disorder. Well, in 1997, 1998, that was what was being pumped into all of our young um, juvenile offenders, um, Thorazine as well as Seroquel. These were the two big pharmaceutical, um, we'll say, medications. Those are just going to knock you on your ass. Those are just going to knock you on your ass. Those are good. Exactly. Those are okay, good. Good job. Very good. Now that Adjust that right there helps apply why I'm using the term the responsib um, the responsibility of that change, being responsible for it. Because if I would have taken the excuse, that medication would have been no different than saying, "Hey, let me go jump in the Bible." I only was aware of what was in the Bible. The problem was in me. The problem couldn't be fixed in the Bible. The problem had to be fixed in me acknowledging my own error. And the problem couldn't be fixed in the, in the medical staff either. So that's what I mean about acknowledging that responsibility. And that's really where it started, Burl, knowing that it was going to be a hard, it was a hard truth to swallow because I wasn't utilizing excuses. I wasn't trying to utilize the distorted perception and say, you know what? There's other individuals that are just as effed up as me. Look at what they're doing, and the, the doctors are just fine with it as long as they can give us a medication and write checks on the board. No, sir. I knew I had a daughter, Sydney Monet Holly Sims. I owed it to my daughter. I owed it to my family. And that was the hard truth that I swallowed, bro. So I started there being able to create a self-inventory, mm-hmm. starting to use self-health classes, um, those classes gave me ways to build models, and I would actually utilize my spare time as a writer and, you know, create the same brainstorming, the bubble, the same bubble that you use in elementary school to brainstorm. And I would start with myself in the center, and I would make my web, and I would list the exact negatives that I was aware of, things that I could hide in myself and not have to acknowledge the things that were being acknowledged through specific actions, and those actions were starting to come out. And as you can see, we've already acknowledged on a very, very volatile and violent scale. So that's where I started in that perspective, bro. 
Well, uh, you're obviously a bright fellow to begin with. But I'll tell you, if they would have loaded you. you up, I, you. If they would have loaded you up on that Thorazine, man. All you would have been was slowed down and not adjusted. You've just been more I've compliant, complacent. Well, I've seen it create monsters. I've seen it create suppression. The worst thing in the world is to couple suppression with depression. And they like to acknowledge them separately, but there's an immense power in a medication suppressing the true characteristics of depression. Therefore, you're never getting to the root of what is creating that depression, which is allowing it to accumulate, and now you're just creating a ticking time bomb as soon as that medication is not available or with an individual is released with all of these same factors still just caved up inside of them. So that's a good point, bro. Well, I'll tell you, I've seen people on Thorazine, and like I say, from what my limited knowledge is of mental health medications, and they've had me on a, on a plethora of pills in my lifetime due to a traumatic brain injury in infancy that had its effects yeah. on me, and they hadn't invented the medication that worked yet. So they were they were putting me on all sorts of stuff uh, that just uh, didn't do anything except screw me up more. And uh, it wasn't until finally, I think in 2001, that a medication happened to come along that my neurologist said, hey, there's a medication now that I think would do the trick for you. I said, really? I said, I've heard that from everything from tricyclic antidepressants to all sorts of nonsense that just made me stupid. He said, well, try this. Wow. And I went, ooh, hallelujah. <laughs> and what was this uh, wonder? Uh, Modifinil, uh, which is known as ProVigil. It just happened to be the appropriate medication to deal with exactly what was happening chemically in my brain. All of a sudden, it was like yeah. fresh air was blowing through my brain. I went, well, my God, it was like a revelation. Well, that's interesting because most of the time it's tumbleweed. I know. <laughs> he knows me too well. But in any event, I was just happened to be in, in that 2001, I think, uh, very fortunate to have an excellent uh, neurologist who was also a psychiatrist. Uh, wow. Brilliant fellow. And he said, this should try this. This should make all the difference in the world. And it, by God, it did. And unfortunately, if I run out of it, at least I have enough self-awareness that I can tell what's happening to me. I can, yes. I can tell my own thoughts are going in a certain direction, and they're going, I don't want them going there. You know? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to think like this because it only causes problems for me and for other people as well. And uh, people who know me well will say, have you run out of your medication? <laughs> I say, yeah, I got it on order from India. It's coming soon. <laughs> yeah, that's the beauty of a physician. Yeah, the divine physician has his finger on the pulse of mankind and <laughs> has prescribed the appropriate course of action, but most of us don't choose to take it, which has yes. a lot to do with kindness and empathy. And uh, <laughs> what was it, the... Uh, it was a great TED talk where the guy was saying, the opposite of addiction is connection. When you're isolated and stigmatized and set aside yes. and demonized, yes. that's, that's what's killing you. You know, uh, addicts don't need to be more isolated and unloved and stigmatized. Just the opposite. The more connection you have, the more support group you have, the more acceptance you have, 
band that makes all the difference in the world. And that's the same yeah. whether you're recovering from anything. Uh, no matter what the condition is, if you're isolated and alone, you feel isolated and alone, and you start getting down on yourself. What, what's, you know, I, my friend, uh, the great songwriter P.F. Sloan said, what exactly is the matter with me? And <laughs> it was just that he was gifted. True. You know, so I, it makes a difference. So you start taking, as you say, personal responsibility for what was happening in your life. And there you are. You're you're locked up. You're you're in the cosmic slammer. But uh, as Abdul Baha said, the the ultimate prison is the prison of self, because it comes yes. from its own torture chamber. And if you can get out of the prison of self, you can be free anywhere. So it sounds like so true. sounds like you made uh, some sort of advancement in that area. How long did how long were you working on that? Working on yourself before they opened the doors and let you out? Oh, man, it's, um, hey, it's actually not even a time chart for it because it's a continuous process, you know. Um, what you just said, actually, about the support system, mm-hmm. sometimes that right there, you know, going away from the medication, I was able to, you know, utilize a support system that was more so internal, believe it or not, mm-hmm. because I've witnessed how the medication actually separates the understanding of who's there for you versus who's not there for yeah. you. Um, when you have that that medication, you're able to, you know, build that type of bond with the relief that you're getting from that medication, that, uh, that medicinal, um, you know, what you're getting from that medicine. So when, when being that I didn't utilize that medicine, um, I was able to hear not just what was going on with myself, but use other individuals for my mirror. Mm-hmm. So that time period has never ceased. I mean, to this day, um, you know, in prison, you got to realize you're dealing with not, not a limited uh, array of uh, personalities, but you are dealing with a specific type of personality base. So the best work after that is going to be coupled when you when you return into, well, when I did return into natural society or what we acknowledge as the free society, um, and you're starting to have to be in situations and work around individuals that are medicated. They may have issues and they're not medicated, medicated, but you still have to figure out and utilize um, the exact way that you still have to carry yourself. Right. No one's, no one's giving you a roadmap on how to negotiate distorted personalities of other people. <laughs> that's right. So that's the point. It's, and those, those that not having that roadmap sometimes is your best roadmap because, like I said, I've already acknowledged specific things in myself. I've already acknowledged, you know, where my error is, where my triggers, where my triggers lie within myself, um, specific shortcomings in, in regards to a lot of times we mistake confidence for arrogance. It's easy to say that, oh, I'm not arrogant, I'm confident. But what when you're really arrogant, but you're saying you're, you're not acknowledging why you feel that way. Um, being able to pull back pieces of that image as an image is deflated and realizing the whole time that you have to rebuild certain constraints that, that are 
they, they actually free you. The things that actually are able to hold me back from feeling certain ways about certain yeah. situations are the liberties that I actually offer myself to become free. So going back into society, I would say that's where my time period as far as the accumulation almost starts over. And I mean accumulation in regards to certain things I'm looking at within myself, certain ways that I'm acknowledging or championing my change. That change changes when you step back into the free society and you're dealing with a myriad of, of different personalities, um, different moods, different situations, different timetables, period, because everybody's day is predicated on a different schedule. So I would say it, it's a continuous process, bro. It's never stopped. It's intensified in certain areas. Some areas of life it's become even, you know, more convoluted. More, it's, come, it's become more confusing, more distorted, because there's always different levels to an increase. So the education of self, it never changes. It's never ceased. You know, it's only been more of an intense study dealing with exactly what I've owed to myself, and that's knowing what I owe to others. Now, when, when, uh, that I can be. when you were in the uh, correctional, I think they call it, they call it Department of Corrections, as our old friend yes, Joe Champagne said, what are you going to correct, my golf swing? <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> my, my buddy Daniel Jennings, who was known as the Apologetic Bandit, did 10 years, mm -hmm. ten, 10 years in, uh, what, federal, state, whatever it was. We've had it on the show several times. And while he was in prison, he read 1,400 books and then wrote a book on the 1,400 books to read while you were in prison and sold that book to Penguin Putnam for well over 100 grand. So, <laughs> so that, yeah. that book comes out pretty soon. Did you read a lot of books while you were in prison? Um, well, I'm a writer myself. Um, that's also one of my, was one of my most, you know, therapeutic processes. Um, the one book that I actually read that, you know, uh, I think Robert Greene, Thomas Juiced, uh, which was The 48 Laws of Power, um, it's a very popular book, but, you know, the way that you receive information is what separates understanding and comprehension from, you know, another individual. And um, that book, to me, you know, being able to see how one one perception or one law has two different ways to be understood. So the transgression and the observation of the law that was utilized for each law, which made the book 48 Laws of Powers, but actually you know, multiply each law by two. So it's not 48 laws. It was actually giving you 96 laws, but they were disguised under a singular, right. you know, process or format. That book alone showed me, outside of the book, how to utilize different um, characteristics of myself. Because knowing that there's two sides, it's easy to say it's two sides to everything, a book has, you know, there's another cover, however you say it, the cliche, but when it comes down to it, knowing that, okay, I can have goodness, but sometimes my goodness is what entails my negatives. Sometimes wanting to help people is what, when help is rejected, then that help turns back inward. And now we're dealing with that withdrawal that I spoke about earlier in the beginning where an emotion is starting to be misconstrued. And, it's, and that book right there, I would say, 
would have to have been the most relevant reading material. Um, I'm a writer myself, so what I done was utilize uh, a lot of a lot of energy and a lot of self therapy in regards to just being honest with self, being able to really write and express the truth. And it wasn't always pretty, but no, it always no, really put the truth out there. It's one thing, you know, you you write it, and then you go back and you read it. Yes, sir. Because you got to go, exactly go back and read it. You got to go back and read it. Because otherwise, and when you're right, when you're truthful, go ahead, bro. Yeah, I was just saying, because if all you do is write it and don't go back and listen to yourself, you don't know when you're saying something stupid <laughs> or whether you're, you're saying right. something well, brilliant. That self affirmation, when you, the difference between trying to, and that's why I'm, a, I don't really champion the self affirmation and just trying to tell yourself something to make yourself feel good. When you don't feel good, what, what, what when you can really write? Why you don't feel good? Starting from, hey, I don't feel good. Then you got another part. Well, why do you not feel good? You know, this is a process that I use in myself, and it was very therapeutic because aside from just self-affirming and illusion, that basically is how the image became distorted to begin with. But when I could actually say, hey, I don't feel good. Why are you angry? Okay, I'm angry. That's one. Why are you angry? Because this happened. Well, how did you get in this situation? Do you see where it takes me now? Yeah, see, because now that, that's is. the big, the big difference. When you say to somebody or ask yourself why, you are asking a question that is almost impossible to answer because it involves so much psychology and internal motivation. However, if you ask the question, how did you wind up in that situation? How? It comes all the way back to you. Yeah. That's right. And that right there, bro, like I said, that, that was the power of self-therapy when you're being, it's like they tell you with the, with the steps in a program. If you work the steps, it works. When you ask yourself those type of questions, there's no need for self-affirmation. I'm not going to lie to myself because I'm never going to fix the situation. The situation <laughs> is myself, okay? Yeah. So when you can really say, oh, I'm angry at the world, but why are you angry? Because I'm in prison. Why are you in prison? How did you get there? It's going to come all the way back to me. So that's how, there was no way out of it, bro. That's how we get where we get today. And I continue to utilize the same process. Great. Mark Mark Boyer has a question or comment for you here. I believe that you you answered it, bro. I've been asked that question many times. uh, Why? And I either don't have the answer or don't want to, or don't want to acknowledge I do. Yeah. Yeah. I say how? How did you no get in this situation? Asked me how? If you ask yourself how, it opens up a whole door. No, no, I have. Yes, <laughs> and I'm afraid. Yes, he's afraid to open the door. I might find out I'm Jewish. Yeah, well, that's he's going to have all this guilt for things you never did. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? That's a good point that he made, bro. Because um, that ha- that's not just like see, we're talking about it now, you know, openly and being able to share it in an open forum. But I can promise you. Every individual, it's not a hard process, but it can be a very difficult process to complete because that self-inventory is very real. And when it comes down to having to answer that question that he just spoke of, then you have an option. You have an option. Are you going to be realistic with yourself or you're going to shimmy around it? And I can promise you, if you can work the steps, they work. But 
you're in control of these steps. And that's why the self-inventory, it won't let you down, but it can be a very long process to accomplish in regards to where you're at in yourself and how that's you That's why you keep that working truth. them. That's why you keep working them. You don't just do it that's once and done. That's why you keep working them. You got to keep working them. That's right. Whatever the program is. Now, I happen to be very fond of a program that was developed by, all of a sudden my mind went blank on his name, but it's... Uh, it's called Recovery International. It used to be called Recovery Incorporated. And it was primarily developed for people with mental health issues. And uh, it's, it's a way of recognizing what you're doing. When you're catastrophizing. When you're uh, seeing things as being totally abnormal. When in reality, they're perfectly average. <laughs> yes, yes. Very good point. And good point, uh, I, I found the techniques of Recovery uh, Inc., uh, incredibly positive and productive and worked, you know. Abram Lowe. Thank you, Dr. Abraham Lowe. Uh, he's the one who created the program, and uh, it's been around for ages, and it's uh, one of the stories in, in uh, one of the books that he wrote is this lady comes in and talks to him and says, uh, I got this real problem. She says, I can't stop scratching my ass. Says, <laughs> what, what is it? No, says, I'm just ripping my ass to shreds. I'm scratching my ass all the time. He goes, really? Did, did you scratch your ass on the bus on the way here? She goes, no. Did you scratch your ass in the waiting room while you were waiting to come in here? No. Are you scratching your ass now? No. Well, what's the difference? How is it that you're not scratching your ass now if you say you can't stop scratching your ass? You know, let's let's deal with what's real here. There is somewhere yeah. a level of choice where you go, now I'll scratch my ass. You know. Hmm. Pardon me a moment. I have I have a little personal time. Yeah. He's scratching his ass. <laughs> I mean sometimes you just gotta hardcore deal with what's real. You know? You yeah. can BS yourself only so far before sooner or later you gotta call yourself on it. And he's gone. Right. <laughs> well, there, um, <clears throat> um, a lifetime ago, there was a fellow named L. Ron Hubbard. I remember L. Ron yeah, Hubbard. He, he, uh, he was the founder of the Church of Scientology. Yeah, he said no, a person could make a fortune combining science fiction and religion. Uh, yes, well, my Thetans have left a long time ago. Yeah, the Thetans. Um, <laughs> he wrote a book called Dianetics, basically talking about what he called the reactive mind. And that uh, as you grow, your, um, your physical and emotional responses become rote. They're hardwired. Yeah. And uh, Dianetics was an attempt to explain that phenomenon, the reactive mind, and ways to get out of it. Yeah, very similar uh, to Dr. Abraham Lowe. It's the same thing. Yeah, well, to, to spot what you're doing, yeah. There was another uh, psychologist many years later in the early 90s, uh, Bradshaw. Uh, he had the Coming Home uh, series. And he basically was talking about how the, that the subconscious um, is programmed and you have no way of identifying the programs. You just run them. So whatever stimulus comes along, you, that stimulus triggers a set response, and you, you, you do it. If anger is what the program says, you get mad, and so forth. 
And the whole idea was how to recognize these uh, programs and how to reprogram them so that instead of a negative response, you get a positive, positive response. People to choose your response rather than have unchosen reactions. But they both, both concepts, uh, similarly saying the same thing, rely on the individual to identify and catalog the scripts or, or, or patterns uh, so that they can take the steps to rewrite them. Yeah, or as Leary called it, reprogramming. Yeah. Once you're aware of how the program is, you can make the conscious choice. I'm going to reprogram that sucker. Uh, yeah, and um, the problem I had with all of it is that it requires introspection. And it requires one to be honest with oneself. And these are things that are extremely difficult for most people. Extremely difficult for most people because of an, un an unrealistic fear of truth. Oh, definitely. You know, you say uh, the truth, know the truth, the truth will set you free. Of course, you get a lot of nonsense being sold as truth these days. And I mean sold in the marketplace and sold for power. But uh, if you're brave enough to trust that Truth, the truth doesn't hurt; it liberates. So <laughs> I think I think one of the things that that hits me is that I have no sounding board to identify whether I have actually discovered the truth. Maybe like if you were in a twelve-step program, you'd have a sponsor that would call you on your stuff. You know, um, actually, no, sir. Um, those programs, even the only time those programs were actually offered would have been in. Um, some of the recent, like back in the juvenile system, going like in Pope, Pope Youth Center, um, as you get older, those, those same systems are basically ran by individuals that are still a part of the same correctional process as myself. So the, the sounding board that was always necessary for me, it, was, it goes right back to the internal because there's too many ways to piggyback off of other experiences and just like Mark just spoke about how think psychological processes become learned mm -hmm. they actually become automated when you put those individuals in the same situation when individuals are part of the same type of uh, correctional process it becomes a piggyback almost to the point where just like getting answers correct in the classroom, um, you know what to do to keep a teacher from calling on you. So sometimes to keep from having to answer a question that you can't answer, you go ahead and get your hand in the air early because if she can see your hand enough, she's going to feel you're so into the class, let me pick someone else. Right. So, yeah, the sounding <laughs> That's board That's manipulation, kind of my friend. <laughs> exactly. It's a, it becomes a manipulation process. So it still came down to the internal benefit of truth, being truthful with self, because um, there's too many ways to, to deviate from that truth when you utilize the force of a sounding board. That, that whole macrocosm of a sounding board and how that can correct you, it becomes the reason that you're able to deviate because there's too many situations that are alike so you don't have to actually deal with one situation we're all dealing with criminal behavior you see mm -hmm. so the sounding board kind of backfires when it comes to an internal or an individual basis and individualism is always going to be the best answer you know that's the analytical approach anyway 
dealing with an individual. So um, I'd have to say I, I didn't, but the sounding board that I, I was able to create was that same internal, which was writing. Writing became that true sounding board, the truth of expression, which is what the basis of a sounding board is anyway. Yeah, so in your writing, what did you mostly like, write journals or did you write fiction or did you just write what was going through your head? What was um, right? Different forms. Um, I pretty much got away from the poetic format because then it's pretty much like what we're talking about now. It's almost like you're piggybacking off of someone else's method. And when you're dealing with a therapeutic sense of expression, it's going to be raw. It's going to be your own format. Sometimes it's going to be, you know, correct the way it can be grammatically correct or you might not be able to spell as well as you other people but it still comes down to um i would say what we acknowledge is prose prose would have been my realest format because it gave me there's not a bunch of room to play around with the beauty of words that's the, that i did achieve that but it came to basically what the theme is, which is why I would say poems would have been not so much short stories. I got into that as well. But when you deal with those formats, it actually gives you a lot of space to dance around what we're trying to get to, and we're trying to get to that self-correction. So the prose is what actually gets you directly to the theme. That's what I was put. That was the realest basis of my expression when it comes to writing. Now, I'll tell you one thing about writing. Having been a professional writer for decades now, and... Uh, <laughs> Is that I, I have had great fortune in dealing with myself in writing. And then one book that I had that I thought was going to be so easy to write, this Fatal Beauty, uh, as my editor said, uh, Michaela Hamilton at uh, Kensington Publishing Group said, You're drowning in this manuscript, aren't you? And I said, Yeah, I am. But I thought this was going to be an, an easy one. She said, Did you bother to did you read your reviews on Amazon? And I said, yeah, and your other book says, yeah, I said, well, that's your mistake. <laughs> Just remember, you write for people who like your books, not the people who don't. True. <laughs> and that was, that was one of the best things anybody ever said to me. That's right. I'm writing this book for people who like my books. I'm not writing them for the trolls that don't. So when people uh, say, I didn't like your book, you know, or they write a review saying, I didn't care for this one. I said, thank you very much for taking the time. I said, yes, I'll sir. tell you what, I'll That's keep correct. writing books until you find one you like. <laughs> but either way, the biggest part of that is if you don't like the book, you still consumed it. You still read it. You yeah. have to read it intensely to not like it. So that's still a consumer and that's still a fan. So that still serves the purpose of a writer. Yeah, you although know. we do get on Amazon, you do get, and I'll tell you how to spot them real quick. I've never written a review before. But this book is so bad, I just have to take pen to paper or fingers to keyboard. And then you know they never read it. <laughs> and yeah. you look up to see what other reviews they've written. And they've written two other reviews that were almost exactly the same, undercutting True. some other author. You know, they do that for yeah. fun. You know, trolls. I can believe if yeah. someone gives one of my books three stars instead of five or two and a half instead of five. But when they give it one, I doubt them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because you can't please everybody, as Rick Nelson said in Garden Party. So you might as well please yourself. So I write books for people who like my books. And uh, I'm blessed, too, to have uh, Frank Gerardo Jr. as my co-author on my three most recent uh, books. Actually, uh, well, yeah, four, yeah, three, three books, four or less. We're working on one together right now. And the, the fascinating thing is about collaboration, which I'm a big fan of. He said, we're never in the same room at the same time writing together. 
He writes, sends it to me. I go, wow, that's really good. And I write something. I say, is this okay? And he goes, yep, use all of it. <laughs> the next thing I know, a few months later, we got a book. And it, it, reads, like, right. and it reads like a cohesive thing when it was kind of like, you know, the, uh, the last uh, half of Abbey Road. <laughs> where you wow. take all these pieces of different songs and stick them together, and it still comes out fine. And uh, yeah. it amazes me. But uh, the Lord loves those who work in groups. And there's a thing about creativity that inspiration inspires inspiration. And uh, I get a kick out of that. That's why I love working around. Uh, uh, back to when I was in a, uh, uh, a rehab unit one time, <laughs> Leonard Bouchel yeah. said to me, we got to get you out of here. And I said, why is that? He says, you thrive around creative people who are doing things. You don't thrive yeah. around toxic people. And this place is full of toxic people. We got to get you out of here. <laughs> and, uh, I'll tell you, the day they they uh, let me go out, I came back with a contract for a a, a nice, real nice book from uh, uh, who was it? From uh, Sony, yeah, Sony Publishing. That was great. <laughs> Went out for the afternoon, came back with a contract. It was delightful. So you're out there. You get out of there. You start rebuilding your life. How did you happen to select uh, this music and rap as uh, as your gateway, shall we say? Well, well actually, um, it, it, everything's connected. Exactly what we're still speaking on. You know, that was a good question earlier when you asked me the format. Um, when we, j just like you guys are speaking about so many different processes, when you start to see results, you start to realize how pivotal it is to be a part of others' life, not so much the individuals that still may look at you the same way, or the, like you said, the ones that don't like your book, you know, you're going to have plenty of those, but just think about all the people we may be able to touch if we could communicate with them what maybe they can't communicate with themselves, like when Mark was speaking about not getting to that third question or being able to answer that. So my job was, how do I be able to communicate? What To be a true communicator. That's what writing is. To be a communicator, how do I help other individuals if they can't understand me? This is how I was able to know that the music, so we go back into the poetry now, that the music, I've always been into music. I was writing rhymes when I was nine years old. I remember getting a whipping because I had cuss words in my little rap book when I was nine, you know? And it, I strayed away from writing poetry from that back then. But I never lost the love for it. So being that I had a grasp of self, I felt that it was so relevant to give our children. And when I say children, I'm talking about a state of mind, not so much an age. I've met 21-year-old children with multiple murders that are still dealing with molestation that no one's ever pulled them out of that darkness. And it's coming out into as pain, mm -hmm. you know? How do... The realest gift that I could give my peers or individuals that deal with a disability of pain was to be able to speak a life that was real, raw, real pain, real negative conclusions, as we've spoken about, with negative results, but show individuals through an art form, which is what the music is for. Show individuals through an art form that there is a conclusion to the consequence that there's a result to the type of way that we recognize our own inner demons. Expressing a violent act 
is not the purpose of an art. The purpose of the art is to acknowledge, okay, yes, you shot someone. Yes, you robbed someone. But do you, do you know the pain that you caused the daughter? Can you express the pain that you caused the mother? Can you give a balance in your communication? This is the reason that music had to be an art form that I championed and continued to excel in, which I was able to do in myself. So that's how that, um, I sing a little bit, but I'm not going to say I'm Donnie Hathaway reincarnated, but, you know, the, um, the, the rap was a responsibility. After growing up watching what happened to Tupac, Amaru Shakur, after watching what happened to Biggie Smalls, you realize that if, if they keep negating talent before talent can bloom fully, then how does the talent really ever communicate the beauty of its expression? This is the reason that rap became my true force to champion because I had achieved the balance in myself. Now my job was to continue to live and express that balance and help others understand that they could achieve that same balance by being able to answer those same questions of inventory that we started with today. No matter how painful, there was power in that pain. And that release is what I was able to give through my music, and I'm still able to do such, although you can tell that the market's not even really predicated for that type of truth because yeah, it's easier it's to continue not. to influence guys. Hey, listen, speaking of music, I hear some coming up behind me right now. Which Check means me. that Thank our producer so is telling us we're Great running stuff. out of time. And time is the only thing we have. Thank you so much for another fascinating hour. Hey, uh, Pearl. Yeah, what's your name? Magic Bad Allen and the Demons of Decadence live from the Lighten Up Lounge on LR Radio Live. The Baha'i Faith. Good deeds, nice people. And a history of being persecuted, abused, and insulted. Let's face it, not everybody appreciates the teachings of the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i faith encourages racial unity and interracial harmony, so racists don't like it. The Baha'i faith upholds the equality of women, so sexists don't like it. The Baha'i faith proclaims the harmony of science and religion, so the superstitious don't like it. And because the Baha'i faith teaches that tolerance and love are the very foundations of a healthy community... Extremist fanatics don't like it. So, if you're a racist, sexist, superstitious fanatic, chances are you won't like the Baha'is at all. But if you have an open mind and a kind heart, hey, call us. You sound like a Baha'i already. For more information on the Baha'i faith, simply look in the phone book under Baha'i, B-A-H-A apostrophe I.